You're listening to The Diplomats Podcast on Asian geopolitics. As always, I'm your host, Ankit Panda, here from New York City. And this is Prashant Paramus. We're in Washington, D.C. How's it going, Prashant? Good. How are you doing? Doing well. We are getting to the end of 2019, heading into 2020. And uh, as we promised our listeners on the last episode, uh, we are going to use this opportunity to reflect on the year gone by, as we've done in previous years on the podcast. Uh, so 2019 was a pretty significant year in a number of ways. I think we saw a number of flashpoints around the region really go through some interesting developments from South Asia between India and Pakistan in February, where we had a skirmish uh, to the crisis with North Korea that now appears to be re-emerging as the year closes out. I think there's a lot to look back on. Obviously, we're not going to be able to cover everything in the normal length of an Asia geopolitics podcast episode. Uh, So I do apologize to our listeners if uh, Prashant and I don't discuss what you think was the most interesting issue to uh, come out of 2019 uh, in in these regions that we do follow. Uh, but the format we decided to actually take for this one was that Prashant and I each, um, in planning for this podcast, came up with three things that we think uh, we're going to take away from 2019 going forward. Uh, and yeah, we're just going to go through and talk through those and uh, you know discuss why we feel that those were the top issues that I think we'll uh, really look back on 2019 and, and see as very significant. Um, anyways, Prashant, I wanted to pass it over to you to kind of kick us off. Uh, do you want to start us off with uh, the first of your three uh, developments? Sure. The, f- the first one I had was um, China's uh, 70th anniversary. So the 70th anniversary of the founding of the People's Republic of China. Uh, China has, you know, a number of these anniversaries. So, uh, you know, virtually every year there's there's some other anniversary that it's commemorating something. But I think this year was was a particular uh, important uh, anniversary for them domestically. I mean, there was a series of parades and commemorations. We even talked about some of the military parades in, in, in this episode. And we talked about some of the events that have been occurring in China this year as well, the Hong Kong protests. And so it's been, I would say, uh, you know, the reason why I picked it is that you know, it's been a big domestic year that the Chinese government, uh, you know, had been forecasting and planning for, but it's been very difficult uh, for them to commemorate it with with utter joy, right? I mean, there are a significant number of challenges that China faces at home. There were the, you know, the Hong Kong protests, the continued focus on the Uyghur situation, U.S.-China trade tensions that have affected the Chinese economy. So it's just, I mean, I, I was uh, in China earlier this year and got to witness some of that. It is important to keep in mind that, you know, even though we see China from this sort of uh, foreign policy lens and international perspective, uh, domestically, you know, China does have its own challenges and their way they're actually trying to message some of these anniversaries to the population is not really jiving with some of the realities that China is facing. And I think that's one of the issues that we've been seeing this year. Yeah. Uh, and, you know, I think the the other issue I'd just bring up there is uh, the slowing um, GDP growth figures in China, mm-hmm. too. Uh, that, uh, again, I think uh, adds to this uh, environment of complexity, giving the Chinese leadership a, I think, deep sense of insecurity around many of these issues. Uh, but yeah, absolutely. I think I think that's well played. I mean, the only the only yeah, I think I think, you know, in thinking about that, I just emphasize, I mean, the Hong Kong protests. Uh, I think there's no way that we're not going to look back regardless of how the protests end. And I know we had a podcast about how they might end before the October 1st anniversary where we had some pretty gloomy predictions, but we just had the six month anniversary and they're still going strong. Um, But regardless of how things end in Hong Kong, um, I think there is no doubt that 2019 will be seen as a watershed year for um, the uh, the future of uh, one country, two systems uh, in the Hong Kong context. Um, Yeah. yeah. What was your first one? Yeah. So I 
I have I have a few, but so I was I was trying to come come up with one around South Asia, mm-hmm. and it's been a very busy year in South Asia. Of course, in February we had a near uh you know a near descent into full out war between India and Pakistan, um, but I didn't go with the Balakot strikes. I did go with, uh, however, the BJP's re-election to power in May 2019 in the general elections and the very impressive electoral mandate that the party landed with more than 300 seats in the Lok Sabha, the lower house of parliament. And qualitatively, you know, listeners might be wondering, well, the BJP has been in power centrally in India since 2014. And yes, that's true. Uh, But I think what we're already seeing um, a little over six months into the BJP's second term is a doubling down or tripling down really on the party's nationalist agenda. And, you know, this isn't me being critical. I mean, the parties, if you read the manifesto for 2019's, um, the BJP manifesto for the 2019 elections, a lot of the things that the party had promised are actually now happening, uh, not on the economic front where the Indian economy is seeing, uh, you know, um, is, is slowing down quite a bit and the party doesn't seem to be necessarily willing to stomach some of the bitter uh, medicine of structural reform that uh, international investors and economists have recommended for a long time. Uh, but instead, you know, we have things like the changing of Kashmir's status internally, uh, the August 5th decision by India to um, begin the process of converting the erstwhile state of Jammu and Kashmir into two union territories, one Jammu and Kashmir and the other Ladakh, um, primarily done through the abrogation of a constitutional provision, um, most of a constitutional provision. Article 370 actually hasn't been removed from the Indian Constitution. It's still there. Um, but um, most of its actual provisions that provided for the autonomy of Jammu and Kashmir have been removed. Uh, but also this week, as we do this podcast, uh, the Citizenship Amendment Bill uh, just passed the Rajya Sabha and the Lok Sabha in India. Um, that's, again, I think gotten a lot of scrutiny around the world. So the broader consequences and the reason I think that we're going to come back to 2019 as sort of a turning point uh, for India is that uh, I, th- I think we're finally sort of seeing um, what many had feared perhaps in 2014 when uh, Narendra Modi was elected with a powerful mandate then. Uh, mm-hmm. Now the BJP doesn't, um, you know, is is nationally um, is nationally strong. Um, also, or sorry, in 2014, they also had a strong mandate, but uh, but now they are less focused on the economic agenda and more focused on the social issues uh, in in India. There's also other issues uh, that I didn't mention, including the National Register of Citizens in Assam. We've had a lot of good coverage, actually, at The Diplomat uh, there with Mm -hmm. uh, reporters based in the region. Um, All of these issues, I think, really uh, portend, I think, a, a dangerous direction for India. You know, we might find it more common to hear India and Modi specifically uh, discussed in the same breath as other sort of illiberal democratic leaders in the region, uh, including uh, Rodrigo Duterte um, and p- potentially uh, European leaders like Orban, uh, Turkey's Erdogan, uh, Brazil's Jair Bolsonaro, who's actually going to be India's uh, chief guest at the Republic Day celebrations in uh, January 2020. But uh, for all of those reasons, I do think, uh, you know, I think the Indian election result in 2019, I think is going to be something that we're going to remember for quite a while uh, coming out of this year. Yeah, I mean, I I think that context is really important to keep in mind, too, because I think we see this with, you know, not just India, but also other countries that are, you know, active in terms of foreign policy, important countries on the world stage that you know, if you see this trend where they're behaving very actively on foreign policy, but there are issues domestically with respect to, you know, human rights, pluralism, and so on and so forth, you do have this dynamic that it creates for other countries and external parties, uh, and the United States is no exception to this, that, you know, you may have to contend with a country where you share a lot of convergences abroad, 
but you may have differences with them in terms of how they govern themselves uh, domestically. And I think, you know, if we see this trend continue to play out, you see this with other countries as well, like Vietnam, uh, it creates uh, an interesting environment. Obviously, India is different because it's a, traditionally a democracy. Um, but I definitely think, you know, you already are seeing uh, some pockets of the United States in response to measures that we're seeing in India sort of saying the United States needs to speak out more on these uh, domestic differences, even though uh, India is a big strategic partner of the United States. Right. Yeah. And a lot of that is happening now in Congress. And uh, there are questions about what happens uh, if, for example, a Democratic administration comes to power. Uh, how does the mm -hmm. U.S.-India relationship uh, weather that? Because I do think Democrats uh, do care about things like human rights uh, in, in India and in Kashmir. So uh, that is definitely going to be part of the agenda if that happens. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Uh, so uh, I guess turning it back to you now, uh, what's your uh, what's your second item? My second item, I mean, I was thinking about how best to frame this, but I, I went with um, essentially U.S.-Asia uh, policy in, in 2019. We've obviously talked about this, you know, virtually in several episodes in this podcast, but I think, you know, 2019 witnessed, I think, the, the concretization of a trend where we saw not just concerns across various realms of U.S.-Asia policy, you know, we've talked about, you know, virtually all of them, alliances, free trade, uh, democracy, uh, but also the continued disjuncture we've seen in the Trump administration between U.S. policy uh, and some of Trump's rhetoric. We talked about some manifestations of this already. We did an episode, for example, on U.S. engagement uh, in ASEAN, where Trump, again, was not present for multilateral fora, and U.S. representation was so downgraded that several Southeast Asian countries actually expressed significant displeasure uh, at that. But we've also had, you know, any number of concerns on this front uh, this year. Uh, Trump's comments on the Hong Kong protests, where he said he would stand by the the protesters, but he also was, you know, continued to be friends with Xi Jinping. Back and forth on a U.S.-China trade deal, uh, negotiations with Japan and South Korea on the terms of burden sharing, uh, and I think it, it's tough to figure out, you know, one way in which to frame this. But I think. There's two takeaways for this for 20, 2019, I think. You know, one is, um, you know, to what extent is what the Trump administration has done in terms of its contributions to U.S.-Asia policy, which is, to my mind at least, you know, a greater focus on competition with China and perhaps some notion of the Indo-Pacific as being an ordering priority for the region. To what extent are those things which are developments on U.S.-Asia policy actually being overshadowed by some of these uncertainties on alliances, free trade and democracy and other fronts that actually have served to undergird U.S.-Asia policy uh, for decades. Uh, so that's one point. And then the second point is, you know, with the you know U.S. elections in 2020 that you just referenced earlier, you know, if this is, you know, we're going to see another administration come to office, it's another reset for U.S.-Asia policy. So I think there are questions in the region about whether to kind of wait Trump out and see how things play out. But if we see Trump get a second term, then I think, it, you know, that is an, another interesting scenario because you do see, you know, with respect to the George W. Bush administration, for example, and other administrations that get a second term, the second term could look very different from the first term. And I'm not sure whether that's going to be better or worse for a second Trump administration. Um, but I think that's the other question, which is that are we really seeing the height of the Trump administration before another administration takes over? Or are we seeing the beginnings of uh, a broader recalibration in U.S. policy that will endure for the next five years? Yeah, no, that's, I think, I think a question that a lot of capitals are thinking through. And actually, you know, my next two items are actually somewhat related to U.S.-Asia mm -hmm. policy. I'm not going to go through both of them now. Um, but, you know, I, I, I will say that, um, yeah, we are, you know, as of January 
2020, uh, we are going to go into potentially the last 12 months of the Trump administration mm -hmm. if, if he's not reelected. And also, um, as we record this, obviously, impeachment developments in Washington are moving very quickly. And I think that's mm -hmm. also being very closely watched. But, you know, if we had to kind of zoom out a bit and look at Asian geopolitics from the perspective of most Asian capitals, I mean, the biggest story really is going to be in many of these places, the U.S. election. Mm -hmm. um, the biggest story in Asia in 2020 is in many ways going to be playing out in Washington, D.C. in terms of the implications for regional geopolitics, uh, because it is going to matter quite a bit if uh, there is a second Trump term or not uh, from, for everything from, uh, you know, cost sharing talks with U.S. allies to also how uh, China is going to think about the trade war and the potential uh, of concluding a, a phase one deal, uh, which now appears to be set for uh, early 2020. So I think, uh, yeah, there's no way that, you know, U.S.-Asia policy uh, doesn't merit a place here on our lists. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. And what was your uh, second one? I guess you had two related ones. but Yeah, I mean, I'll start with the one that's actually less related. Um, I mean, it is related because the two countries involved here are U.S. allies, but it's mm -hmm. not related because the United States is sort of a sideline player in the actual mechanisms of the dispute. And I'm, of course, talking about the rift between Japan and South Korea that has really uh, reached a remarkable um, breadth this year, right? Uh, so mm -hmm. a little a little bit by um, a little by way of background. Uh, so the current tensions really um, you can you can really trace them back to the Obama administration and the December 2015 Japan Korea agreement on the comfort women issue. Uh, uh, Korean women that were uh, sexually enslaved by the Imperial Japanese Army. Uh, the Korean government uh, had been demanding uh, reparations and an apology from Japan. Under the previous government of President Park Geun-hye, who was eventually impeached, uh, Japan and Korea reached an agreement that was sort of entirely done behind closed doors without civil society buy-in um, and was largely rejected by South Korean civil society. And obviously the issues kind of stewed. And then you had President Moon Jae-in, a progressive, uh, elected in May 2017. And... Um, by the end of last year, uh, you were beginning to see the other issues related to history sort of crop up, including a South Korean Supreme Court ruling that Japanese companies had to compensate South Korean workers for forced labor during the Second World War, uh, during Japan's occupation of Korea. And in effect, um, that ruling sort of blew the lid off uh, the tensions. And uh, Tokyo this summer imposed uh, export controls on South Korea, claiming that materials produced in South Korea had been uh, sent actually to North Korea, where they were being used to manufacture uh, weapons of mass destruction. And, uh, you know, there's there's a lot more complexity to it. We had an incident last December where a South Korean uh, warship uh, conducted, a, um, locked its fire control radars on a Japanese surveillance aircraft. Uh, but broadly speaking, um, these tensions, I think, are here to stay, at least uh, mm -hmm. during my recent trip to Japan. Uh, you know, Japanese officials saw very little room for things to go back to the way they were uh, as long as President Moon Jae-in remains in office. And um, Moon has still, he just reached the halfway point of his administration, so he has two and a half years to go in a non-renewable single term. Um, but many of the dynamics and the way that they've played out in South Korea, where you now have a broad um, you know, boycott of Japanese materials and really a, a sort of swelling up of anti-Japanese sentiment on the left and the right, um, it looks quite uncertain, the trajectory of this relationship. Um, for the South Koreans... What is really at stake now is a fundamental relitigation of the 1965 normalization agreement with Japan. And as mm -hmm. far as Tokyo is concerned, uh, the book is closed on normalization. Uh, normalization cannot be relitigated. Uh, so as far as where the two countries go from here, um, 
it's I think really going to come down to whether they can find an off saving um, a, a face saving off ramp here uh, for for their um, for their respective priorities. Um, there was, of course, the possibility that this dispute was going to cost uh, trilateral cooperation in the region a fair bit with South Korea announcing in August that it was ready to scrap the 2016 General Security of Military Information Agreement, or GSOMIA, with Japan, uh, which was heavily pushed for by the Obama administration. Um, of course, they reversed that decision at the last minute uh, on a temporary basis, but if things don't improve next year, uh, we could see this get worse. So I think I think when we look back, I think and we think about sort of U.S. alliances and trilateralism and regional coordination in Northeast Asia, 2019 is really going to be a, a year that we talk about for a while. Uh, this Japan South Korea dispute. Um, I was I, I think I think a lot of observers who follow both countries quite closely um, did not expect for things to really blow up in the way that they you know it did. Uh, mm-hmm. The expectation was that you would have the the uh the ministries of foreign affairs in both countries sort of handle things behind closed doors uh as as um as the situations evolved but uh this really became a major political dispute so uh that i think will be something that we'll be talking about for quite some time yeah absolutely and i and i think as you alluded to this this is of interest uh not only to the two countries but you know geopolitics more generally whether you look at it from a us alliance perspective or you're you're also seeing and and you continue to see uh, the Chinese, whenever you see, you know, a downturn in the relationship or a mending of ties between the two countries, you know, there'll be outreach to South Korea, outreach to Japan, and it affects broader geopolitical issues like North Korea as well, right? So this is something that's of broader regional interest uh, beyond just these two countries. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so uh, I guess we're on to our uh, final items each. So uh, do you want to start us off with your uh, third and last item? Sure. Uh, so my third one was uh, this this notion of an Indo-Pacific uh, concept, and it's something that we we've been discussing for a while, uh, including on the podcast. But I think you know the reason why I had it on the list is because I think 2019 was really the year that we saw the Indo-Pacific you know concretized not into just a discussion point among U.S. policymakers or or you know sort of the renaming of of, of a command or some sort, but a possible option for regional order. Right. So we saw not only the release of uh, reports from the Department of Defense and the State Department and the US side, but we also saw a mention of the Indo-Pacific in other countries that have been talking about the Indo-Pacific for a long time, India, Japan, Australia. And I think most notably, uh, we also saw the release of the ASEAN outlook uh, on the Indo-Pacific, um, which is important, uh, not because not just because that uh, Southeast Asia is more important than all these other countries. The Southeast Asian countries are much smaller, but because ASEAN tends to be the default option for where regional multilateralism coalesces around. And it kind of helps set the table for whether this Indo-Pacific concept is actually going to give us anything in terms of a regional order moving forward, or whether it's a concept that's actually going to sort of ebb as we go uh, into 2020 and and beyond. And I I think this is something which um, some uh, people initially had dismissed as being something that's purely a Trump administration issue or a concept, but I really think we kind of have moved beyond that, irrespective of what the United States does under Trump or or after Trump. Uh, you know, Indonesia is hosting a conference next year on the Indo-Pacific, uh, looking at ideas on regional connectivity, infrastructure. Um, so you really are seeing countries grab onto this, not necessarily as a geopolitical concept, uh, designed in terms of, you know, great power competition and so on and so forth, 
but just as a way to think about the region in a more holistic sense uh, beyond the Asia Pacific in and of itself. Right. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, I think next year there's definitely going to be a lot of follow up. So uh, but again, the question is, you know, does the Indo-Pacific or does at least U.S. interest in the Indo-Pacific concept uh, outlive the Trump administration potentially in an election mm -hmm. scenario? It's 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 difficult to say. I think uh, I think there are reasons that a Democratic administration might look to uh, not reinvent the wheel, so to speak. Um, but uh, again, I think it's an open question. So uh, we'll have to we'll have to see going into next year. Yeah, and I think I mean that point is is important to to emphasize because I, I I don't know about you, but when I'm out in the region, I I think people are very quick to remind um, people who are based in the U.S. that I mean we heard the same thing about the rebalance policy under the Obama administration for such a long time, and then when the Trump administration came into office, you know the the rebalance was declared dead, and now we have a new concept. The TPP was seen as something that was a foregone conclusion, and now the United States is you know out of it at least for now. So I think over the past few years, a lot of uh, incidents and developments have actually reinforced this tendency for regional observers to be very careful and circumvent, cir circumspect whenever looking at whether things in U.S.-Asia policy are actually going to endure. Right, right. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. And what was your uh, third and final one? Well, you know, it's going to be pretty unsurprising, I think, to regular listeners of the show. But uh, I have to say <laughs> the slow collapse of U.S.-North Korea talks. Mm -hmm. Um yeah, 2019, I think, you know, we're going to look back. I mean, we're going to look back this whole round of diplomatic engagement with North Korea is really a lost opportunity. Um, the, you know, I had sort of been arguing for quantitatively and qualitatively capping North Korea's arsenal while we work towards verifiably eliminating it over the long term. Uh, the administration did not accept that. Uh, the policy was we would only move forward with any kind of arrangement once the North Koreans had agreed to a full roadmap that resulted in their disarmament. And of course, things collapsed in Hanoi with the second U.S.-North Korea summit in February. In April, Kim Jong-un announced a end-of-year deadline for the United States, calling on Washington to take a bold decision. In May, North Korea resumed its ballistic missile testing after a pause of more than a year uh, since November 2017. Um, and... They've launched 26 missiles this year. It's the busiest missile testing year on record, depending on, you know, the criteria you use to count ballistic missile tests in North Korea. Um, and uh, now, as, you know, we sit here in December 2019, uh, it appears that the North Koreans have made a strategic decision to really close the diplomatic door with the United States, even before the end of year deadline, and move, move ahead with introducing sort of qualitatively new capabilities like uh, solid propellant, long-range missiles uh, that can be more responsive and flexible in a crisis, things that we really shouldn't have allowed the North Koreans to develop. But hey, here mm -hmm. we are. There's no deal. Uh, there's no more diplomatic negotiation. Trump is, uh, you know, he's calling Kim Jong-un rocket man again. The North Koreans are calling Trump a daughter again. Uh, so <laughs> the crisis is back. And, uh, you know, really looking into 2020, um, we really shouldn't be surprised if uh, things between the United States and North Korea get very heated again in the way that they were in uh, late 2017 and the second half of that year when Trump uh, threatened to totally destroy North Korea. So I'm not going to say a lot more because we just had a podcast episode entirely dedicated to North Korea. But yeah, I think uh, there's no way that we don't think back on what happened in 2019 and uh, not really talk about the, uh, the total mismanagement of these uh, diplomatic talks with North Korea. Yeah, and in fact, you know, as we discussed in the last podcast, we we might be back with you know another podcast. Who knows with this you know Kim Jong Un's comments um, previously about uh, you know diplomacy, this this notion of a Christmas present, and 
his New Year's Day address as, as well. So plenty to talk about uh, on North Korea in the, in the weeks to come, I'm sure. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so I know we I know we both talked about our three major issues, but uh, I was wondering, I mean, you know, it is, I mean, Asia is a big place. 2019 was a big year. And I know mm-hmm. um, both of us probably have a lot of honorable mentions. Um, is there anything you wanted to sort of add as an honorable mention uh, for issues that, you know, I think, um, or at least that you're going to remember from 2019 going forward? Yeah, I mean, I I had, uh, you know, in terms of elections, I think Indonesia's election was quite significant. Um, You know, if you're looking at, you know, India as a major power in Asia and and talking about continuity with respect to the Modi administration, uh, I think, you know, Jokowi 2.0 and seeing how Indonesia evolves, um, that's going to be important, not just for Indonesia's own sake, but because Indonesia does play an outsized role globally, um, as well as in the region. So I think that would be one which um, I think I would include. And I think one other thing, I mean, you could make a case, um, you know, even though this is a, a geopolitics podcast that, you know, the Hong Kong protests have, you know, dominated really the news cycle for for so many weeks on end. And, and in fact, several more months than people initially anticipated that you could make a, a separate space for Hong Kong as a development on its own terms. Yeah, totally. Um yeah, I mean, other sort of notable moments from 2019 that I'd bring up, um, I'd say the the missed opportunity in Afghanistan, uh, you know, Zalmay Khalilzad's deal with the Taliban getting sort of torpedoed by Trump at the last minute. I think uh, that's going to be something that we talk about as a what if for a while. Uh, mm-hmm. The administration doesn't appear is going to be successful and it's, you know, like its predecessors in withdrawing from Afghanistan uh, unless something dramatic again happens next year. Um, we haven't really talked about Central Asia, uh, which is something that I know we uh, focus on quite a bit at The Diplomat, but, um, you know, we have obviously continuing a reform in Uzbekistan under uh, Shokat Mirziyoyev and uh, Nur Sultan Nazarbayev formally stepping down as the Kazakh president, uh, giving way to Tokayev as the sort of formal president, but Nazarbayev still continues to really run the show there. Um, also, you know, just to bring up another issue in terms of China, um, I will say, I mean, th- this year really seems like the the nature of Chinese authoritarianism has begun to really reverberate in a big way overseas from the cases of uh, Michael Kovrig and Michael Spavor becoming mm-hmm. more broadly appreciated uh, in an international context. Uh, obviously, the internationalization of China's um, network of concentration camps for Uyghurs in Xinjiang, uh, everything from China attempting to censor the NBA. I mean, really, many of these issues have, um, I think, really changed the nature of the China debate uh, internationally. And, uh, you know, you can look at sort of public opinion polling that that really does show that publics in the West have become less um, sort of amenable to accommodating China and are more uh, sort of aligning with where policy is heading, uh, which is in a more hardline direction. Uh, other issues uh, electorally, maybe, uh, you know, we did just talk about this, but Sri Lanka's election, I think, will be uh, something that we again remember uh, 2019 for as a, as a major turning point. Um, Taiwan's growing uh, international mm-hmm. isolation, I think, uh, 2019. I mean, really, every year since 2016, there have been other indications. But 2019 was, I think, a particularly big year with the Solomon Islands, uh, Kiribati, uh, all uh, suspending diplomatic ties with uh, Taipei in favor of uh, Beijing. Um I'm trying to think of uh, any other issues, but uh, those really, I think, jump out to me as uh, as major developments this year. Yeah, I think one one other point to note. I mean, we when we do these yearly sort of annual takes, sometimes the the issues that are more sort of slow burning um, and that recur, um, you know, don't really get emphasis, even though there are some notable developments, right? So the issue of climate change, for example, where we see periodic fo- forecasts that are quite dim 
including in Southeast Asia, you know, the, the Mekong in particular, the Mekong River, um, that's something which, you know, we won't get mentioned uh, in terms of top developments, but I think, you know, warrants attention, terrorism and the Easter bombings uh, that we saw in Sri Lanka. I mean, that's something that regional governments still are thinking about, even though the the focus now is, you know, the, the particularly in Washington is on great power competition, still these non-traditional uh, security threats that are, you know, important to monitor as well moving forward. And then, of course, uh, the South China Sea, even though I, I think we can expect that North Korea will continue to dominate the headlines in, in 2020, the fact that uh, Vietnam is going to be having the chair next year, uh, you know, I think all indications are that if, you know, 2019 saw a little bit of a dip in terms of the focus on the South China Sea, we might actually see uh, more of an increased focus on that in, in 2022. Right, right. Uh, yeah, well, the one big thing I forgot to mention uh, is the end of the INF Treaty in Asia. That's also going to matter mm -hmm. quite a bit in 2020. In fact, we're supposed to see, I don't know, I keep hearing that we're going to see an intermediate range ballistic missile test by the United States before the end of the year. And uh, mm -hmm. time's running out. So uh, keep an eye out for that. Uh, but anyways, Prashant, I know we could you know do this for several more hours. Um, but thanks a lot for joining me. And uh, this was uh, really fun to kind of reflect on uh, the year that was. Yeah, it was great. Great. Uh, and for listeners, if you uh, like what you heard on the podcast, make sure you subscribe so you don't miss future episodes. You can do that on Google Play, uh, iTunes, or I guess they're calling it Apple Podcasts now, and uh, Spotify. And if you've been a subscriber for a while but you haven't yet left us a review, uh, please do that. You can do that at any of the places that you uh, subscribe to our podcast. It really does help the show, so we'd really appreciate that. And before we close out, just a quick note from our sponsor. This episode of the Asia Geopolitics Podcast is brought to you by Diplomat Risk Intelligence, or DRI. DRI is the Consulting and Analysis Division of The Diplomat, the Asia-Pacific's leading current affairs magazine. Since its launch in 2002, The Diplomat has been dedicated to quality analysis and commentary on events and trends in Asia and around the world, and is now one of the most respected publications covering the region. DRI inherits this approach and offers clients in the private, public, and nonprofit sectors worldwide access to an exclusive network of subject matter experts and analysts. Whatever your needs in the wider Asia-Pacific region, DRI can offer the knowledge and expertise necessary to anticipate and manage geopolitical and geoeconomic risk. For more information, please visit dri.thediplomat.com. Thanks a lot for listening, and Prashant and I will be back soon with more.